Friends, let's continue that worship by taking God's Word this morning, God's Word, the Bible, and opening it up to the book of Zechariah, chapter 2. If you're visiting with us, I just want to join in that warm welcome to you. It's good to have you with us this Christmas Eve, and if you don't have a copy of God's Word, just look in front of you, the rack in front of you, you'll see a copy there, and can follow along with us. The book of Zechariah is the second last book of the Old Testament, so please turn there and follow along with us. As you're turning, let's not leave uh, the worship too quickly of what we just sang. This is what we just sang. Let me remind you what we just sung together. Let all mortal flesh keep silence, and with fear and trembling stand. Ponder nothing earthly-minded, for with blessing in his hand, Christ our God to earth descended, our full homage to demand. This Christmas hymn is one of the oldest of the church, let all mortal flesh keep silence, actually dates back to the fourth century that we just sung. Now that's amazing to sing along with the saints, right, of old, but I am quite certain, as old as it is, as rich as it is, you did not hear that Christmas hymn while you were out shopping this week. Very certain of that, you didn't hear that. Instead, you are serenaded with a variety of jingles on what Santa will do, or the call to rock around the Christmas tree, or most ear-piercing, you heard that all a diva wants for Christmas is you. Yes, the old true carols are all but what? Silent now, aren't they? They're silent. You don't hear them. There was a time, even a few years ago, I remember, that was the last vestige of breaking the gospel into the culture was the Christmas carols. Now it's mush. Store speakers filled with noise. And songs all very earthly-minded. Is that not true? And like so much today, this earthly malady is not an earthly secular problem. Some of you know it was almost 10 years ago, almost a decade. My family and I walked into a church and we were presented with this in worship. Jingle bells and Feliz Navidad. And worship. Worship. Worship to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. That was 10 years ago and in the past 10 years in the church it's only gotten worse, has it not? We have exceeded abundantly in becoming more earthly-minded. Is that not true? We have that. We have it. Christian groups, let's call them that. More and more, song by song, turning to the earthly-minded and forsaking the heavenly-minded. Just last week, remember, Bill took us to the great, rich theology of the carols. Nobody wants that anymore, right? It's too antiquated. Two turn of the century. But Christian, what are we to ponder at Christmas? Listen, I want to make sure we're clear on this. Many things are good, right? 
talking to many of you, you have gatherings you're, you're going to over the next two days. Those are good. The generosity that will be on display over the next two days, that's great. The heart of, of God first and foremost. Many things that are good. Let's not miss that. But the Christmas song we opened with, or just sung with, I should say, reminds us, again, listen to it. At his feet, the six-winged seraph, cherubim with sleepless eye, veil their faces to the presence. As with ceaseless voice they cry, Alleluia, 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 Lord Most High. So we sing with the seraphim and the heavenly host, Alleluia, Alleluia. And, and we are silent as mortal flesh, pondering nothing earthly-minded. There's no paradox here. Because this is what the advent of Christ, the coming of Christ calls for. Listen, to sing of Christ and to be silent before Christ. Heavenly-minded pondering. And this Christmas Eve, this Lord's Day morning, we turn to an Advent text that confirms that. Look down at Zechariah chapter 2. Let me read the verses that will be our focus this morning. Start in verse 10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord. For he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, God, we come before you in light of this text, these two commands to sing and be silent. Lord, let that be our response this Christmas as we consider your ancient words, your eternal words. Let us indeed sing. Let us be silent before you. We ask and pray in Christ's name. The prophet Zechariah, the book you have open in front of you, ministered after the exile. Remember, the Jews went into exile, 70 years of captivity. Well, this message came after Israel returned to the land. That's very important. As many people might want to claim that the prophet's message of Israel's return to the land pertained to that return after 70 years of captivity. Zechariah doesn't allow us to do that. So prophecies of Israel's return to the land, as some would say, is just simply what we saw in the 6th and 5th century. But what you have open in front of you, one of the post-exilic prophets, along with Haggai and Malachi, speak not only of a coming return to the land, one still to come, now remember that's after they've returned, of another return to the land, but a preparation for a different kind of return. Haggai and Zechariah were sent to stir up Israel, the returned exiles to the land. That 6th and 5th century, Haggai and Zechariah sent to stir them up to prepare. Haggai first saying, Bill, don't be so complacent. You've returned to the land. Build. Ready yourself for your king. Zechariah comes along and, and, and casts the horizon even further. Says, Prepare and build for what is coming. And build, they did, sort of, 
with delays and distraction, a temple built vastly inferior to the one Solomon built, a temple with ill-ready constructions that represented an ill-ready people for their king. No surprise then when the king did come, and as God spoke, he did come 400 years later in the first century, there's no surprise they what? They weren't ready for him. In fact, that's being generous, they rejected him. They used the 400 years of silence, at least from God's revelation in the intertestamental period, to fill it with man-made tradition and self-righteous ceremony. Lots of noise. Of course, man's readiness for Messiah never altered the timing of his coming. But Israel's readiness for Messiah did mean that Christ came, and because he was rejected, it did mean that he would need to come again. That's the key. Christ came just as the prophets foretold. You know these verses. As a child born, Isaiah 9, verse 6. To Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2. On a donkey, Zechariah 9, 9. Pierced for sinners, Isaiah 53, 5. But... Those first coming prophecies were fulfilled, but what about this? The government could not yet be on his shoulder, Isaiah 9, 6. Israel could not say they knew the Lord, Jeremiah 31, 34. And foreign rulers and pagan nations had still not come and worship Christ the King, Psalm 2, Daniel 2, Zechariah 14. In fact, when you look back at Christ's first coming, in the wake of his first coming... Governments turned against Christ and Christians. Israel turned from the Lord, and pagan nations worshipped anything but the one true God. Those are conditions that continue up to this very day in the inter-Advent period, and that simply means between the first and second coming of Christ. As such, those prophecies, as was clear at Christ's first coming, still await fulfillment. This is, we've studied this at Westmount, the dual horizon that the, provent, uh, the prophets gave us. Christ is coming, and what wasn't understood back then is what we know now, is that he was coming a first time, and he was rejected, so he's coming a second time. Like approaching the mountains and seeing the gap between the two. A closer look at the prophets also revealed this. Now in our hindsight, we can look at the prophets and we see this fully. So for context, look at Zechariah 2 verse 1. Look at this in verse 1. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me to measure, look at this, Jerusalem, to see what its width and what its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, run, Say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Just as it is, if you look at those verses, just as it is in Ezekiel 40 and Revelation 11... A measuring line, do you see that, is pulled out before the holy city Jerusalem. And that, as it was in those texts, and it is in this one, is a sign that restoration was coming in at hand. Jerusalem, be ready. 
The measuring line is out. Be ready. But also you must note in these opening verses of the second chapter of Zechariah, and maybe you've caught it already, is not the walls, but the lack thereof of walls. Did you catch that? They're not there. Again, the returning exiles in Nehemiah famously were doing what? Rebuilding walls. Why? Because enemies were attacking and they needed protection for Jerusalem. Not here. Again, this is where we see the second horizon. The prophet says, in this coming time, look at it, no walls are needed. Why? Verse 5. I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. That must echo to you the exodus out of Egypt, doesn't it? The wall of fire around the delivered, the protection. Today, that's just not the case. Israel needs what? We've said this before. They need the IDF. They need an iron dome. They need man-made walls to protect them right now, don't they? They need that, or they're... In one sense, practically in trouble. So this vision and prophecy, this fulfillment, Westmount, awaits. More, look at verses 6 to 9. It confirms this. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus said the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Up, up, look at it, verse 6. The call to return and dwell in Zion, Zion, the coming Jerusalem, and to flee from the daughter of Babylon. That's a reference to the worldly domains. Again, this is after exilic return. Flee because judgment is coming on those other nations. Just as other prophets foretold. Jeremiah, right? Much of the book of Jeremiah talks about this. Judgment by way of Yahweh's hand shaking them. Verse 9, Israel's enemies. Tables turned, and that's familiar. Do you remember that? As Egypt was in the Exodus. So in this time, verse 9, Yahweh says they... Israel's enemies shall become plunder for those who serve them. Beloved, those are conditions yet to come. And those are conditions this book, Zechariah, presents over and over. Listen, this is the point Zechariah is saying. King is coming. Be ready. He is coming. And king will come again. Listen to Zechariah 14. This is coming. Behold, A day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken and the houses plundered and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day... His feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee, listen to the language, to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountain shall reach to Azal, 
And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day, there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one. Back to Zechariah 2. In the wake of Christ's coming and Christ to come then, we have these verses to end chapter 2. This is what Zechariah is telling In these final verses of Zechariah 2, there are two commands given in the wake of the first and second coming of Christ. And they're simply this. Sing and be silent. Two commands given, again, in the wake of Christ's coming. And then Zechariah gives us reasons why. That's our focus in our remaining time this morning. And we will ask this, why sing and why silence? I trust a simple, timely, and refreshing reminder this Christmas Eve and season. So first, why we must sing. Look at verse 10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. The command to sing, first and foremost, to the daughter of Zion, to Israel. To Israel. The Gentiles, to the Jews here, were the daughters of Babylon. Right? That evil summit, that evil label, right, is very much... Jews and Gentiles, and that was always the Old Testament contrast. And into the new, Jew, Gentile, Jerusalem, Babylon, that's always the contrast. The the city center of each. Jerusalem for the Jew, Babylon for the Gentile. However, as we've learned in our study in Romans, remember the plan of God for the people of God was always the Jew first, but also to the Greek, Romans 1.16. Gentiles with faith have been grafted into the olive tree of life and faith. We've studied that. Even more, as these commands we see here in verses 10 to 13 were given in the wake of Christ's coming, but listen, they were given to a people who what? Rejected him. Think about that just for a moment. These commands are given to a people who had a king, and they rejected that king. So I want you to think with me for a moment. If that is true, and the commands are given by an omniscient God who knew that the people would reject him, listen, how much more are they applicable to a people who receive him, right? To a people who receive him, how much more are these commands applicable to us? Christ is coming, as this book of Zechariah foretold, the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead. He is the one the Lord of hosts, Yahweh, has sent. Look at the end of verse 9. He is the one. Israel. Faithful, expectant ones, Christ is coming, and this is how you make ready. You sing, and you rejoice. Westmont, this is what God's beloved faithful ones do. They sing. They sing. And church, I don't know what has brought you here this morning, but I want you to think about singing for a moment. Have you ever considered why you sing? Why you sing? Singing is wonderful. But something is not good when we sing without a purpose, right? 
And here the Bible says there is purpose in singing. We were made to sing, but not just to sing in and of itself. We were made to sing to someone. Voices, loud, harmonious, beautiful, and different. Listen, with purpose. I might submit to you as an aside this morning, there's far too much that goes on in our world that has no purpose. Is that not true? And is it any wonder people feel empty? Because they're trying to do things without purpose. Well, here the Bible says you sing just not because it sounds good or it feels good or the melody to something. You sing unto the Lord. Why? We're going to look at those reasons in a moment, but let's be clear that the Bible says sing. Psalm 47.1, shout to God with loud songs of joy. No, you don't sing in a whisper or hum. Psalm 66, 1 to 2, shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Jeremy took us to Psalms 33, sing a new song unto the Lord. Ephesians 5, 19, into the new, address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to who? To the Lord with your heart. That's clear and comprehensive instruction. Church, we sing. And here as we continue now in verse 10, verse 10 we're going to see reasons why we sing. Number one, we sing for, look at it, because the Lord says, I am coming. I come, or I am coming. Look at verse 10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, look at it, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. We noted how the prophets warned a close look to understand them rightly. Well, here a close, close look reveals two comings of God from above. You have to look close. Two comings revealed here in one verse. How do we know? Well, the first, verse 10 Look at it, it says, I come. If you have an NASB or an LSB, it says, I am coming. And that's good because it pulls out the participle in the original, the present tense, ongoing, the coming. In Zechariah's time, this had full force. Christ was coming. That's motion. He's coming. Hence, build. Behold, I come. I am coming. This is the first coming of Christ, the Gospels record. This present tense coming in Zechariah's time was on the horizon. 400 years coming. Yet, we've talked about the dual horizons, it was split in two, because not soon after, we know, and this especially as Christians today, we know looking back, Christ does not just come once, we continue in verse 10, I come first, and second, I will dwell in your midst. That is not present, but that is future. Look closely. This is Christ dwelling in the midst of his people. This is not rejected by his people. It is rejection, not dwelling, that we see at Christ's first coming. In fact, listen again to Mark 6. How was Christ received? Mark 6, he went away from there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. This is his hometown. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Of course, it'd be more than in his hometown and in his household. Most in Israel would reject this Christ. 
This is very different to dwelling among. Remember, the purpose, as Jeremy read in John 1.14, is that he dwelt among those that received him. But that's not what we see, by and large, in Israel. In addition to that, we'll see in the very next verse, the nations coming to worship, Zechariah says. And we learned that in Romans 11. So much here, we would say these conditions that Zechariah is laying out still await Christ's second coming. Christ came and Christ will come again to dwell really and truly and fully with his people, the remnant of restored humanity. Now, saints, let me ask you something this Christmas Eve morning. That is ample reason to sing, isn't it? Ample reason that when Christ comes again, as Jeremy reminded us, it is going to be loud. It is going to be a spectacle for all to see. And that's just the first reason to sing here, that Christ is coming and Christ will come. We sing, listen, because our God came to us. We sing because Jesus Christ will dwell on earth with us in righteous reign and rule as nations come, not just individual people, but nations. Speaking of nations coming, Zechariah's prophecy presents another reason. Look at verse 11. We sing because God's plan includes not just one nation, but many Look at verse 11. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people and I will dwell in your midst. There it is. Connection to verse 10. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Beloved, God did not have to redeem humanity through Israel, as we heard this morning, but he did. He did. Westman, God did not have to include nations in his program of salvation, but he did. Gentile, you once were separate strangers to the promise, and you once were far off, Ephesians 2, 12 and 13. You once far off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. Blood not just that brought you near, but that bought you eternal life. It's a Gentile believer. That is not just why you sing. I want to submit to you this Christmas Eve. It's why you must sing, right? It's why you must sing. You, Christian, join to the Lord in a Gentile preview of coming fullness. You, Christian, referred to by God in that day, listen, Gentile, referred to as my people. In that day, God's own. That's why we sing. And it's more than enough, but yet see another reason. End of verse 11. We sing because the God-man has come and listen. We recognize and know him. I want you to think about the world we live in today. The world recognizes many things and many people, don't they? You could get a celebrity to walk through that door and everyone would be, what? Oh yeah, I know who that is. But it's another thing to recognize the God of the universe, isn't it? To recognize God Almighty. And one of the hallmarks in this age, as in every age since the fall of Adam, is an inability and a lack of humanity to recognize God Much we could say about this. End of verse 11. And you shall know. Here are these conditions. Second coming. You shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Any reading of the New Testament would say, really? It's going to be conditions flipped around? This is a clear statement here, not only of the amazing program of God we've studied in Romans, fullness, but even more, let's think deeply this Christmas Eve for just a moment. This is a clear statement of Trinitarian action. Look at it. God has sent God to you. Do you see that? You shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. That is God the Father sending God the Son to you, Israel, first, and then to you, Gentiles, second. 
And here it is. Unlike Israel's first reception, Gentile, you recognize God the Son. You recognize him and see it. You know him. You know him. To know God, think about this, to know God in, this is it. In Israel, that reality says Yahweh was worthy of boast. Jeremiah 9, 23, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. We see that all over, right? Let not the mighty man boast in his might. We see that too. Let not the rich man boast in his ridges. Sadly, that's everywhere. But let him who boasts, boast in this. What's the boast, almighty creator God? What's the boast? That he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And to know God, Christian, when you think about this, to know God is what we sing about. In fact, in the New Testament, we would call that a confession. When you sing, you're confessing God and confessing Christ. That's who we confess in this age. 1 Timothy 3.16, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. What is that? What do we confess? What do we know when we sing? He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Incredible confession we sing. And we will actually sing that as our focus tonight. And that's a hymn that's even older than Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silent. All right, one more reason to sing in these verses before we move to verse 13. Look at verse 12. One more reason. It says this, And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. We sing, beloved, because the Lord fulfills his promises. That's why we sing. We're reminded here that in the first century... Christ came, just as the prophets foretold. Again, this was referenced earlier this morning. Christ came as a child born, says the prophet Isaiah Siska. Christ came in Bethlehem, born there, Micah, on a donkey, Zechariah, pierced for sinners, Isaiah, all fulfilled. Well, in verse 12, look at it, we're told that the Lord will inherit Judah. And in Deuteronomy 32.9, a song of Moses, note that, it said the Lord's portion is what? His people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. In verse 12, we're told that that portion will be in the Holy Land, Jerusalem chosen. And of course, that's exactly what descends in final fulfillment. And don't miss this, beloved. If we were to get a preview of that coming fulfillment, listen to Revelation 21. You know this text. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw what? The holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is restoration promised, restoration actualized, fulfilled. West Mountain, all faithful God, fulfilling his promises is worthy of song. And of course, there's other songs in this book of Revelation we could go to as well. Always. And saints, that is why we want to sing. Because God is a faithful God. Okay, that's why we sing. But it's not the only response in between his comings. 
We need to simply see this as we close, why we must be silent. Look at verse 13. Why we must be silent. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. With Christ's coming, we are called also to be silent. And note that we is not just Israel or the Gentiles, is it? Look at verse 13. It's what? All flesh. Both. This is created and mortal human beings called to be silent. Beloved, this is a familiar response. First to the weak in Israel. Listen to the prophet Isaiah 41.1. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the people renew their strength. That silence called for. Also the command to the redeemed soul before God. Psalm 62.5. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. Silence is called for, first, because of where God is. Look at verse 13 again. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Similar command, by the way, in another prophet, Habakkuk. Habakkuk 2.20 says, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Again, very similar. Similar language. So, The prophets teach us that all flesh's response to the Lord in his holy heavenly dwelling, the heavenly temple, is silence. Holiness, by the way, always demands silent contemplation, doesn't it? Again, we have a habit of rushing too fast to noise, don't we? We have a habit too often of boasting in what we think is holy. But this is the posture called for. And we have to note here, by the way, when you think silence, that silence here is a posture. Silence is not a zipper on your mouth, right? And of course, a good Bible reader says, I know that because I was just commanded to sing, right? After all, again, we are commanded to sing. You cannot sing with your mouth covered. This is a posture with a purpose to contemplate and meditate on God. We've looked at this our Wednesday night studies this fall, meditate on God. Slow down, be silent, and think on the Lord. And not just who God is, but here really is it when we think about what's behind silence. Ponder what he has done. And even more here, Zechariah is pointing to what he is doing and what he will do. Do you see that? And it's very simple here. First, be reminded of Isaiah 41.1. We looked at that earlier. It goes on to say this, listen to me in silence, yes, but then this, let us together draw fear for judgment. That's it. We are silent as we contemplate what the Lord's return means. This is what's missed in the noise, isn't it? 2 Timothy 4.1, Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom. Beloved, that's what the second coming of Christ will bring. Righteous rule, hallelujah, but righteous judgment. You want evil dealt with? It's coming. You want evil nations dealt with? Believe me, it's coming. The question is, are you ready for God to deal with you? That's the question this Christmas Eve. How would you answer that question? And the response you can see is be silent and ponder. If the world ends tonight, are you ready to face your maker? That's a question. 
Be silent and ponder that. Are you ready? Silence is a gift given to ponder things that we easily abandoned in the hustle and the bustle and the chaos of Christmas. Are you ready? And listen, silence is always given as a gift, even in the end. Listen to Revelation, verse 8, back to that book. Time betrays us, by the way, to consider all the connections between Zechariah and Revelation, both in one sense, apocalyptic books of their testaments. But here is one connection, Revelation 8. In the middle of final judgment, this is the mercy of God. In the middle of final judgment, Revelation 8, that final seal, that final fury unleashed on the earth, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, listen, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them, and another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. That is why we must be silent. Listen, today's noise crowds out tomorrow's reckoning. That has never been more true than on this day in 2023. We are filled with noise, aren't we? And we must ponder in silence eternity. Because listen, eternity awaits. So we sing and be silent while there's still time before Christ comes again. In his mercy, he tarries, right? In his mercy, he tarries. Remember, he ascended to heaven, and this is where he went, his holy dwelling. This is the picture here in Zechariah 2.13. This is where Christ is now. But Zechariah 2.13 tells us he has roused himself. In a phrase, in a word, roused, which has different connotations depending on how quickly you wake up. Some people take a lot of time to rouse, don't they? And some people snap to their feet. But aren't you thankful that the Lord's rousing is at least 2,000 years long? Aren't you grateful for that? Think of your loved ones. Aren't you grateful? The Lord is rousing. He has roused himself. Christ's imminent return is described. The Lord is roused and ready to return. The coming of the Lord draws near. That's the picture between comings, as it always is, as we wait for his return this Christmas, as we wait for the final Christmas. Let us both sing and be silent. To do that, we'll be helped in a moment, and we will sing this. Just consider what we're about to sing. Yet with the woes of sin and strife, the world has suffered long. That's an understatement. Beneath the angel's strain have rolled 2,000 years of wrong, indeed. And man at war with man hears not. Did you catch that? Man at war with man, because they're at war, can't what? Hear the love song which they bring, the angels. Oh, hush the noise, ye men of strife. Hear the angels sing. Pray, maybe ears will be opened this morning. 
Let us hush and ponder that familiar angel song. In the stillness of this day, and we heard it read, just hear this angel song. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Do you hear that? As you await the second arrival announcement and the final Christmas, the question as the coming of the Lord draws near is simply this. Are you ready? Father in heaven, Lord, we do thank you that you have made a people here ready. Thank you, Father, that it is not because of anything that we have done, but it is only because of your mercy and grace. Oh God, as we consider that night, we consider that birth and the implications of the return. Lord, open ears and open hearts this day. We beg and pray in the name of the Christ, our Savior and Lord Jesus.